This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Ecclesiastes, morning and evening. Uh, I would encourage you to come to both, if at all possible, for the sake of balance. This morning, I will be dealing with the big idea that we shouldn't expect too much from this life. And this evening, I will be dealing with the big idea that we shouldn't expect too little from this life. And so if you are here only this morning, you're going to find some imbalance and perhaps a little more of a pessimistic and sorrowful outlook on life than is warranted by God's Word. So I would encourage you, you really should try to come morning and evening every Sunday, but I would say at least this Sunday, make a special effort to be here Uh, morning and evening, and I think you will find that you'll profit from Ecclesiastes in its balance. Someone once said, it is a mark of a good thinker to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. The quote is often attributed to Aristotle, but apparently it is a misattribution. Nevertheless, The quote is out there, so someone said it, and I agree with it. It is the mark of a good thinker to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. We see Paul doing that, for example, even in 1 Corinthians, which we just read. He said, if the dead are not raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And we are of all men most to be pitied. So he, he takes an idea which he does not agree with, and he thinks about it, and he works through its implications. It is a mark of a good thinker to be able to entertain an idea without accepting it. This is what the author of Ecclesiastes does. The function of Ecclesiastes within the context of the Bible is to examine the consideration, what if the here and now was all there is? Or at least all we could know there is. What if all there was is this life, quote, under the sun, as that phrase is repeatedly used in Ecclesiastes? What if if this life under the sun is it? Or at least what if we couldn't know for any, with any certainty about anything else other than this life under the sun. That's what Ecclesiastes does, is it entertains that idea, and it explores that idea and its implications. Now, of course, as Christians, we know that life under the sun is not all there is. Just as the Apostle, when he wrote 1 Corinthians, was fully aware that, in fact, Christ has been raised. And yet, Paul is able to take an idea without accepting it and entertain it and work through its implications. Likewise, the author of Ecclesiastes takes an idea without accepting it, entertains it, and works through its implications. This is what's going on in the book of Ecclesiastes. So we can enter into the thought experiment today and we can consider this life under the sun as if that was all there was. 
This is what the so-called preacher, as our ESV Bible translates it, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. This is how the ESV translates that title. Other translations have it as teacher. Other translations have it as collector or compiler, as in someone who compiles sayings of wisdom. The Hebrew term is koaleth, and I'm just going to say koaleth today, uh, strangely taking the most complex option. The reason being because there are so many different nuances to the way that it's translated that it's actually hard to tell which one's right. And are we listening to a preacher? Are we listening to a teacher? Are we listening to a compiler? I'm just going to avoid that and say Koaleth for today. The words of Koaleth, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, okay? So Koaleth carries out a thought experiment. What if life under the sun was all? What if life under the sun was it? Koaleth uses this phrase, under the sun, at least 17 times, by my count, I probably missed some. That's why I say at least 17. And Koalath uses the parallel phrase under heaven at least three times. At least I take it as a parallel phrase. R.C. Sproul takes under heaven as the antithesis of under the sun. Um, I, don't, I don't think that that's either necessary or even warranted. I think it's basically a parallel phrase. And we have this life under the sun, this life under heaven, here, here where we are, this, this life, I take those as parallel expressions. So 20 times in Ecclesiastes at least, um, and I probably missed some, so there's probably more. This phrase is repeated, this life under the sun, this life under heaven. Clearly this is the main theme, the main idea of Ecclesiastes, life under the sun. And what does he say about it? Well, he says in chapter 1 and verse 2, which I read for you already, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The footnote here says the Hebrew term hebel, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remind you of that term because it's broad. The Hebrew term hebel, translated vanity or vain, refers concretely to a mist, vapor, or mere breath, and metaphorically to something that is fleeting or elusive with different nuances depending on the context. So rather than saying vanity, which tends to be sort of a, it has one aspect of the term habel, but for example, meaningless has perhaps a different aspect of the meaning of the word habel. I'm going to say habel. And we can have all these things in our mind when I say habel. Vanity, vapor, meaninglessness, elusive, all of these things. Koaleth says that this life under the sun is Hebel. This, mist, vapor, meaningless, vanity, etc. This is why we know that this is a thought experiment. Because if, if I were to ask you, what is the Christian understanding of this life? Is it meaningless? You would say, no. It's not meaningless. If, if I were to say... Does God basically consider this life just nothing? And, and it doesn't matter at all 
only the next life matters. Is that Christian doctrine? You'd say, no. Right? This is why we know that this is a thought experiment. Because of the things that Coalesce says about life under the sun. Because he takes this theme of life under the sun and says things which are not Christian, frankly, about them. Just like Paul says, if the dead are not raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Well, is your faith futile? No. Are you still in your sins? No. But if the dead are not raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Likewise, if all there is is life under the sun, then it's hebel. It's meaningless. It's mist. It's vapor. This is why we know it's a thought experiment because of the things that Koalath says about this life under the sun. He says in chapter 1 and verse 13, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. How would you describe life? Koalath says, life under the sun is an unhappy business. Chapter 2 and verse 17, he says, I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is hebel and a striving after wind. There are lots of things you can catch. Lots of things you little, little children can take a net and go catch. Think of crabs. Think of insects. Fish. But send a child out with a net to catch the wind. It's not going to happen. Kola says life is like this. It's this frustrating, futile pursuit. Koalath is essentially putting on the philosophy known as nihilism. He's entertaining what is called nihilism without accepting it. Nihilism is a philosophical outlook most frequently identified with Friedrich Nietzsche. And it, according to the Internet Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is an accredited and peer-reviewed resource, it says, Nihilism begins with the notion that the world is without meaning or purpose. Given this circumstance, existence itself, all action, suffering, and feeling is ultimately senseless and empty. Koalath is essentially cloaking himself, clothing himself in nihilism as he writes the bulk of Ecclesiastes. Now, someone might say, well, really all there is is life under the sun. I don't buy into your Christianity. I don't believe in Jesus. I don't believe in the Bible. In fact, I don't believe in any God. I just believe we're just here. We are essentially here by random chance. But here we are. And there's so much that's good and beautiful in this life, even if this is all there is. There is meaning. There is value to what we do. And there's no need to hate life. This nihilism is 
far too pessimistic of an outlook. And we don't need to go from non-Christianity directly to nihilism. We could actually have a more cheerful non-Christianity. I would say this. On the one hand, you're, you're right. That's your objection. There is much to enjoy here. And more on this tonight. As I said, I'm going to try to bring you some balance between the morning and the evening service tonight. There is much to enjoy here. There, there, there is much good in even this fallen creation, even in this life under the sun. More on that tonight. So on one hand, the objector is right. On the other hand, that is an attitude that is scarce among those who are profoundly suffering. So easy enough to say in the modern West with all of the accoutrements of modern life handy at our disposal, all of the comforts, all of the ease, sitting in your air conditioning, watching philosophy videos and, and other ideologues on your tablet screen or, or perhaps you've cast it onto your 95-inch TV, right? And here you are saying, hey, life is pretty good. No need to hate life. No need to be so pessimistic, so on and so forth. Your life might be decent, considered in itself. And you might find that it's tenable to say all we have is life under the sun, but hey, it's pretty good. Let's embrace it. But many people's lives are bleak. Could everyone universally say the same? The answer to that question is no. And so is your optimism philosophically sound or are you an exception to the rule that life is actually pretty rough under the sun. You modern Western person in your comfort who finds life pretty pleasant. Does the kind of optimism that the objector raises, does it bear up under careful thinking and thorough examination? No, it doesn't. There are many, many, many people profoundly, profoundly suffering. Take that Take that philosophical, groundless philosophical optimism and go to someone, you know, in the, in the Russia-Ukraine conflict and talk to them about, hey, life is so full of goodness and beauty. Take that groundless philosophical optimism and go to talk to someone in absolute abject poverty in which many, many people do live. Someone without clean drinking water and so forth. Tell them, hey, life is beautiful. Life is really, truly wonderful. There is no God. There is no anything else. But this life, this life under the sun is wonderful. It's a gift. Just embrace every day. Carpe diem. Seize the day. Now, nah, miss me with that. All right? Considered in itself. Considered in itself. As if there was no God. As if there was nothing else. This life under the sun. Right? There may be exceptions to the rule to some extent but there is it is understandable why some hate it what Koalef himself says in chapter 2 and verse 17 I hated life we can understand how people get there 
considered in itself as if there's nothing else. It's just this life under the sun. It is indeed meaningless. Any talk of, well, we can find meaning without God, without anything bigger. Our lives still count. Count for what? Yeah, the next generation, you're meaningful to them. The next generation, your grandchildren, you're meaningful to them. But as I've said to you before, and as our brother Tevin has also made the point in his preaching, listen, most of us don't even know our great-grandparents, our own great-grandparents. And if you say, well, I do, still, you probably don't know your great-great then. Listen, we go through life trying to make our mark, but for the vast majority of us, our mark is forgotten within a few generations. Considered in itself as if there is nothing bigger. Life is indeed meaningless. Koaleth is right. Hebel. Hebel. Hebel of Hebels. Hebel of Hebels. All is Hebel. Mist. Vapor. Meaningless. So on and so forth. Let's look at a few aspects that Koaleth mentions. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 4. A generation goes and a generation comes but the earth remains forever. This is what I was just talking about. Look, you're going to come and you're going to go. And long after you come and go, unless Christ returns first, this world's still going to be spinning and you're going to be forgotten. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I won't read it for the sake of time. But I will read verse 1. He says, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself, I said in my heart. But behold, this also was vanity. Hebel. He indulges himself in all of the things that men think will make them happy. Riches and women and other sensory gratification, food and drink and whatever. And at the end, his assessment, Hebel. Vanity. Listen, there are people, there are people even now, rich people, telling you this if you're prepared to listen. Money is not going to make you happy. I was listening to Dan Bilzerian, who is a godless, wicked man. If any of you know him, a womanizer, filthy rich, and just hedonist through and through. And he said, I have done it all, everything. And I'm telling you, Happiness is not found there. Koalath told you. Dan Bilzerian tells you today. Hebel. Vanity. Chapter 2, 18 to 20. You work. And you build up some net worth. And then you leave it to a foolish heir. Or chapter 4 and verse 8. Says some people have no son or, or brother to leave it to and you say to yourself why am I why am I working so hard building up this net worth for who or you lose it all Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verses 13 and 14 says there's a grievous evil I've seen under the sun riches were kept by their owner to his hurt and those riches were lost in a bad venture you work for decades building up something and then poof it's gone. Hebel. Injustice and oppression. Chapter 3 and verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, 
in the place of justice, even there in the courtroom where justice is supposed to be done, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, that is the place where righteousness is supposed to be, people you trust to be righteous people, even there is wickedness. And then there's death that feels unfair. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. In my Hebel life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. We look around and we say, why? Why does the righteous man die? And the wicked live long. Psalm 73. The psalmist says, I looked around and I was like, what's going on? Why did the wicked prosper? It seems like things are going worse for God's people. What profit is there in righteousness? Then there's the inevitability of degeneration and death, even if we live a hundred years. Chapter 8 and verse 8. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. Plain and simple. No man has power to retain the spirit nor power over the day of death. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, which is a poetic way of talking about the degeneration that we experience as we age. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. So he's contrasting youth with what follows here. He says, before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain and the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird, And all the daughters of song are brought low. They are also afraid of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. And the dust returns to the earth as it was. And the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Hebel of Hebels, says Koaleth. All is Hebel. Some of you listening are ready to agree with me and with Koaleth that life would indeed be meaningless and worthy of unhappiness and even hatred and loathing if this life under the sun was all. The rest of you would dispute that and say, no, we could have life without God and it would still be beautiful and meaningful and so on and so forth. Listen, put yourself in the shoes of the suffering. Nihilism logically results. Atheism, godlessness, 
naturalism, nihilism, all of it logically results in such a bleak outlook. The nihilists are the most consistent of the atheists. To hold otherwise is simply a product of a naive and self-centered worldview that's parochial, looking only at your own comfort and the decency of your own life. For now, which, which might get worse, for the record. Without due consideration of the global state of affairs and the plight of man, man uh, pardon me, the plight of many, many others less comfortable than you. We ought to affirm Koala's conclusions that if life under the sun was all, it is indeed an unhappy business that God has given the children of man to be busy with during our years here under the sun. And it, is, it ought to be understandable to us that many like Koalath would say, I hate life. I don't say all of this, listen here, I don't say all of this to discourage you and to bog you down, ultimately. I do say this, however, to wean you off hoping, ultimately, and rooting your joy in temporal things, in life under the sun. I'm trying to help you see that life under the sun is not all that it's cracked up to be. It's not all that social media is going to tell you it is. It's not all that the unbelieving and ungodly ideologues are going to tell you that it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting for this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. It's important. No one likes talking about these things. No one likes talking about facing directly, looking in the eye, death and the, the hopelessness and the meaninglessness of life outside of Christ. Nobody, it's not pleasant conversation. Don't, don't bring this up if you're trying to have just a pleasant evening with new acquaintances. Right? But listen, there is profit in thinking about these things, in squaring up to it, in facing it. It helps us realize, look, I would be a fool to put all my eggs in the basket of life under the sun. C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Listen, longing for another world starts with getting dissatisfied with this one. With realizing that something is profoundly wrong. With realizing that something is profoundly broken and coming to terms with that. If you're telling yourself, look, I'm totally happy in this life. I'm totally satisfied in this life. It's comfortable enough. It's good enough. Everything's alright. It's not meaningless. It's beautiful. It's good. So on and so forth. You are... You are mistaken, first of all. And because of your mistake, you're not going to per perceive your need for something better and something greater. So if I can displace 
your wrongly anchored hope. If I can untie your moorings from something that isn't strong enough to hold you when the storm comes, then I will do that. I will displease you and bring up this subject, unpleasant though it is, so that like C.S. Lewis, we, may, we might find ourselves unsatisfied by this world and recognize that we were made for another, as he puts it, and long for that and hope in that. And this is the broader context within which Ecclesiastes functions, this thought experiment, this nihilism, both Scripture as a whole and Ecclesiastes itself assume and teach that this is not all. Did you catch, even as I read to you from Ecclesiastes 12, that he says, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. Many people have said that there's inconsistency in Ecclesiastes. It's like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Because on one hand, he keeps saying, Hebel, Hebel, vapor, mist, elusive, meaningless, vanity. But on the other hand, he keeps on saying things like, the Spirit's going to go to God. And then he, at a different chapter, he says, who knows whether the Spirit goes to God. People have noted this inconsistency in Ecclesiastes. The way to resolve it is this. The man believes there's more than life under the sun. He's a a Christian, if I can use that term anachronistically. Obviously, he lived before Christ. So, we recognize that's an anachronistic term. But if I can put it in that way. He's a Christian. But what he's doing is he's entertaining an idea without accepting it. He's talking in Ecclesiastes about life under the sun as if there was only life under the sun in an effort to do exactly what I'm trying to do today with you in an effort that young people will see in the days of their youth. Don't chase riches. Don't chase women. Don't chase food and drink. Don't lay up plans and build your net worth with the mentality that when you get to a certain point, you're going to be happy and you're going to be satisfied and everything's going to be the way that you hope it will be. Don't look at injustice in the courtrooms and say, I'm going to fix that so that this world, this life under the sun becomes all that it should be. I'm going to pursue political change and agitate for political renewal. Koala says, nah, generations are going to come and generations are going to go and there's going to be nothing new under the sun and what goes around comes around. And you might make change for a generation or two or three, but at some point, nations rise and fall and judicial systems, the political systems that you tried so hard to reform, even they crumble and so on and so forth. Koalath is saying, consider it. Think about the fact that life under the sun, if that's all there is, it's, it's very 
fleeting. The things that you pursue, you might not even catch. That's why it's elusive. Vanity. Meaningless. Everything you do will most likely be forgotten within a hundred years. Think about that in the days of your youth. Remember your Creator, He says, in the days of your youth. Think about the fact that one day the silver cord is snapped, the golden bowl is broken, and your spirit is going to return to God who gave it. Think about that. That's what He's doing. He knows full well there's more than life under the sun. So do the other 65 books of the Bible, and they tell us this. All He's doing is He's He's adopting a nihilistic outlook to help us think it through. Hey, if you're trying to get your fulfillment, your satisfaction, your joy, your hope in this world, be prepared for disappointment. If you're trying to leave a a legacy that lasts forever, be prepared for disappointment. You're You're writing it onto a mirror with washable markers and a tsunami's coming. Nobody's going to see what you wrote. That's what he's doing. So that we will look beyond life under the sun. Wisdom wisdom literature, of which Ecclesiastes is in that genre within biblical categories. Wisdom literature is given to make us wise. It's to help us understand life and to live it well. To understand life and thereby to incorporate what we've learned about life in such a way into our lives that we live our lives well. Ecclesiastes is teaching us don't expect too much from this world. Don't root all your joy. Don't root all your hope in here. At the end of the day, it's Hebel considered in itself. It's hard. It's unsatisfying. It's missed. Vapor, it's fleeting. What do we live for then? As I read to you at the, at the beginning in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14, the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. When your spirit returns to God who gave it, in this context, it's not talking about eternal bliss. It's talking about going to Him to stand account, to give account, to stand before His judgment seat. Which means all of the spirits of everyone in this room will one day go return to the God who gave it. I'm not telling you you're all going to be saved. You're all going to go to heaven. That depends on what you do with Christ which we'll come to in a moment. But what I am telling you is, your spirit will return to God who gave it to give an account for your life, to stand before the judgment seat. What to live for? Not riches, nor sensory gratification, nor political change, nor simply the prolongation of life, for no man has power to retain the spirit, power over death. But rather, Ecclesiastes tells us, live for the approval and the approbation of God. Live with the consciousness that one day the silver cord will be snapped 
the golden bowl will be broken and your spirit will return to God to give an account. Live for that. Don't live for these other things. Live for that. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling us. Live for your duty rather than your desires. Better yet, learn to desire your duties. Reorient your value system. This is the way to live. Focus not exclusively on the here and now, but incorporate and in fact emphasize the there and then. That last day, the judgment seat of God. Live with a consciousness that one day your spirit will go to Him to stand account, to, to give account. That's what Ecclesiastes is doing. That's its function within the canon of Scripture, within the 66 books. Now, this raises a problem, which is a, a twofold problem. One is that we all have guilt. Elsewhere in, in the Scriptures, and remember the 66 books function as a whole, right? Elsewhere in the Scriptures we read that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Which means, even when we do our best to fear God and keep His commandments, guess what? We fall short. So when the Spirit returns to the God who gave it, to give an account of our lives, we fall short. We have guilt. That's the first aspect of our twofold problem. The second aspect of our twofold problem is this. We have corruption. And so, though the Scripture tells us, fear God and keep His commandments, our hearts by nature say, I don't want to. And even though we are warned about the folly of not fearing God and keeping His commandments, we, we just say, I don't care. I'm still going to live for my own sensory gratification. I'm still going to live to build riches. Still going to live to advance my career. I'm still going to live to try to create a big reputation that will reverberate for a decade or two longer than the people of no reputation at all. I'm still going to pursue these hebel things, these missed things, these vapor things. We have this problem in that we are by nature inclined away from God. And that must be overcome. And then even when we come to faith in Christ, we still find that there's this residual temptation and tendency to revert back to old ways of living and not to live to fear God and keep His commandments. So we have this twofold problem, this guilt and corruption. Here is the gospel, the good news. Jesus came to deal with both aspects. You see, the gospel is not that you may have a second chance. And today, you may wipe your slate clean and try harder. And maybe this week you can earn God's approval. Maybe in this new year, if you make enough resolutions, as midnight strikes tonight, you get a fresh start. Maybe in 2024 you can please God. That's not the gospel. That's moralism. That's trying to earn and merit something at the judgment seat of God. Listen here, the gospel is this. God looked at us after we had fallen, messed up, 
with our hearts inclined away from Him, He said, man, they are never going to do what they need to do for my dwelling place to be with them and for me to be their God and for them to do my people. He looked upon us and said, but I would like to dwell with them. And I would love for them to be my people and for me to be their God. So God loved the world and He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. God looked upon the sinful, broken, messed up, rebellious, godless world with love. That's what John 3.16 tells us. It's from the loving heart of the Father that Jesus Christ came. He sent Jesus to do everything that needs to be done so that He would justly be able to dwell with us, be our God, and we be His people without compromising His holiness. And so Jesus came and lived a life of perfect righteousness in our place. And then He died a penalty-bearing death in our place. So on whose righteousness do I stand when my silver cord is broken? When my golden bowl is broken, when my spirit returns to the God who gave it, who, on whose righteousness do I stand? On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. On His righteousness. All other ground is sinking sand. And on what basis do I plead that the wrath of God not be poured out on me? When my spirit returns to the God who gave it? Not that I've done so many good things to outweigh my bad things. Can we just let those bad things slide? No. Jesus paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. And so when my silver cord is snapped and my golden bowl is broken and my spirit returns to the God who gave it, and God brings every one of my deeds into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or evil. I'm going to say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. That's the gospel with respect to our guilt. God deals with this problem we have of our guilt. Knowing if we embrace Koalet's message to live with a consciousness of God's impending judgment. We realize the problem, that we have a guilt problem, and when we go to be judged, we're going to be condemned. That's the gospel with respect to that dilemma. Jesus solves our guilt problem by coming to live for us and to die for us so that we may be justified. The other aspect of the twofold problem, as I told you, was corruption, which is that our hearts by nature are not inclined to fear God and keep His commandments. You know what God said He would do about this problem? In Ezekiel, He said, I will put a new heart in them. I will take out a heart of stone, this hard-heartedness towards me, and I will put in a heart of flesh. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone, the new has come. Listen, God has not merely sent Jesus to live for us and to die for us so that our guilt problem would be dealt with, but by His Spirit, 
whom he has sent into the world to do his wondrous work. He has given new hearts to people who formerly had no desire to fear God and keep his commandments. And he's turned us from our evil ways and he's inclined us towards him. So that as it says in Romans, in my inner man I delight in the law of God. Look, we're not perfect. We still have this remaining corruption. If anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar and he makes God a liar because we do have sin and God says we do. But the reality is, at the same time as we still have this remaining corruption, we actually do have this new desire to please God. We can say with Paul the Apostle, we make it our aim to please Him. We say, oh how I love your law, as the psalmist says. And by this new heart that He's given us, by His Spirit who helps us and aids us, by His Word which guides us, Thy Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to Your Word. Through this process of regeneration, this new birth, this new heart, with the help of His Spirit, with the help of His Word, He takes us, and after justifying us apart from our works for Christ's sake alone, He actually works on us to make us people that live well, that actually fear God and keep His commandments. Not perfectly, but increasingly. Such that because of Christ and all the blessings of the covenant poured out on Him, including His Word and His Spirit, because of Christ, it is possible then when our silver cords are snapped, our golden bowls are broken, and our spirits return to the God who gave them. Because of Christ, it is possible to hear instead of a condemning sentence. Rather, well done, good and faithful servant. Because of the justification that is in Christ, because of the sanctification that is in Christ, we may take Koalath's advice, as it were, and live for the judgment seat of Christ, but not with an impending sense of doom, but having been made right with God because of the work that He has done in our hearts and is doing in our hearts, with a hopeful sense of expectation that having made it our aim to please Him, that He actually will be pleased with us, and that we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Let us reorient our lives then, recognizing that this world considered in itself is Hebel. And let us live not so much for the accomplishments and the enjoyments and the accoutrements of the here and now, but for the judgment seat of God. And not with a sense of dread, but because of our confidence in Christ Jesus with a sense of longing and hopefulness and optimism. Let us embrace a heavenly longing and a heavenly mindedness.